Isaiah this morning, Isaiah 44, verses 24 through Isaiah 25, verse 8. It's on page uh, 16 in the Bible in the seat back in front of you if you want to follow it there. And this morning to begin, I'd like to invite you to imagine some possible future events in world history. Imagine that over the next 20 years, China continues to rise in preeminence on the world scene while America, due to our economic woes and our huge debts and our lack of moral values, continues to diminish in power and significance. In China's hunger for land and and for raw materials, as that increases, China takes control of Mongolia and Siberia and Myanmar, and parts of India. Despite threats and diplomatic strategies and UN resolutions, no one else in the world has the power or the will to stop China's expansion. Then, more dramatically, China attacks America. And because of our many offenses, God Almighty allows China to be victorious. Now, to staff all of the factories and research and data facilities that China is building in places like Siberia, it engages in a program of exporting the technical and the managerial talent of America to Siberia. Meanwhile, China imports multitudes of rural Chinese and Indian and other Asians to America to labor on American farms and in forests and mines and oil fields. And so in the space of several years, a vast number of well-to-do, capable Americans like you and me find ourselves exiled to Siberia. And there, of course, we're made to work inhumane hours, in substandard working conditions, in the harsh Siberian climate. And as we struggle to survive, we also grieve for our country back home as, as we hear bits of news that America is quickly becoming an America we no longer recognize but is becoming, to our view, something foreign, something corrupt, something ruined. And in the midst of our grief, among us arises a fresh longing, a longing for democracy and for freedom. We, We go back in our minds to the ancient stories of our founding moments and to those brave men of foresight who fought for our liberty and, and founded our country. We, we long for a new president, a, a commander-in-chief, someone like George Washington, someone who uh, can lead us in, in the battle against oppression and tyranny, someone who can set us free and bring us home, someone who will champion our freedom and, and who will rebuild a free nation based on democracy and equality. We pray, we hope, we long for, for what seems like forever, but then a prophet arises among us. Someone who walks with God, someone who speaks for God, and this prophet foretells that God has indeed heard our prayers and, and is about to move on our behalf. He'll indeed send us such a president, such a commander-in-chief, a new George Washington, so to speak, to, to liberate us and to restore us. Who will this deliverer be? He will be the up-and-coming Iranian Ayatollah. This Muslim cleric, the prophet says, will very soon lead the Muslim world in overthrowing China, 
And in this expanding Islamic empire, we will find our ways home again. And so the prophet invites us to rejoice. What? We say? There must be some mistake. You can't be serious. An Iranian Muslim cannot be the leader God uses to save us. George Washington? He's no George Washington. Well, such is the scenario and such is the difficult tension we find in today's passage in Isaiah. On recent Sundays, we've been working our way through various passages in Isaiah 40 to 48, prophecies addressed to God's people in exile. Because of their offenses, God had sent the pagan emperor Nebuchadnezzar to conquer and to oppress the Jews. God's people had experienced their city, Jerusalem, being leveled and their temple being destroyed and their towns being demolished. And then they were carted away into captivity to serve the pagan Babylonians. There in a foreign land, they suffered, they grieved, and and they longed. They longed for the days when they had been a free people, when they had been a nation under God, living in truth and in righteousness. They longed for the days when they had had a king, a, a ruler like King David of old, who had been their founding father who had saved them from their enemies and had founded a good and a just nation. And they longed for such a king, a son of David, to arise again. They called this hoped-for figure the Messiah, which means the anointed one, the one anointed to be king in place of his father David. And now God has sent his word to them through the prophecies of Isaiah 40 and following, giving them hope and and stirring up their expectation that God has indeed not forgotten them. Yes, God is on the move and is about to bring about their deliverance. God is going to send them a Messiah, an anointed one. That's the word Isaiah uses in chapter 45, verse 1. An anointed one to bring them back from exile, to rebuild their city Jerusalem and their temple there, and to resettle them in the towns of Judah. The name of this great Davidic king? In today's passage, we finally find out. His name is Cyrus the Persian. How can this be? How can God say he's going to save his people through a pagan emperor like Cyrus? I mean, obviously, Cyrus is the wrong guy in so many ways. He's a pagan worshiper of false gods. He's not Jewish. He's not circumcised. He doesn't know or keep the Torah. He's not from the bloodline of David. And he's not even on the Jews' side. If, if Cyrus is Israel's long-awaited deliverer, then they aren't really going to be delivered at all. Even if Cyrus does send them back to their homeland to rebuild Jerusalem and its temple, they still won't be free. They'll be under Persian rule, a pagan Gentile ruling over them. God's people want their independence. They want to go back to how things were before Babylon came along. They want, to, uh, they, they want the rule of Babylon to end, and they don't want to serve any other new foreign empire. Thank you very much. This surprising prophecy by Isaiah about Cyrus sure enough gets the attention of God's people. 
just like a prophet would get our attention if he foretold that our deliverer would be an Iranian ayatollah. So what do we learn from this? What do we learn about God and about His ways? Well, what do you learn about God when God upsets your expectations? When God doesn't answer your prayers in the way you prayed them? When He doesn't come through like you hoped for? Like, uh, or rather, when He uh, lets your life go in ways which don't make sense to you? Have, you been, have any of you been there? Well, first of all, we learn that God is far less committed to our security, even our national security, than we are. Why should He be? After all, He is our security. And we learn that God is far less committed to our comfort than we are. After all, He is our comfort. And we learn that God is far less committed to our personal dignity and our national pride than we are. After all, He's inviting us to find our pride and our dignity in Him. So let me ask you, as we go into 2011, are you ready for anything that your personal life or geopolitical events might throw your way in this decade ahead? If you really have the Lord, you are. If you really trust the Lord, you are. If you really know the Lord, you are. But in case you aren't, this passage reminds us and reveals afresh to us who the Lord is. This passage is an invitation. It's an invitation to a wayward people who have let their hearts wander far from God to get to know who their God really is all over again. Because as our key biblical truth states, though God acts in unorthodox, crazy, even offensive ways, nevertheless, we are fools not to trust Him. I've had to learn this lesson many times myself. For example, in my early 20s, I, I met a girl who I really thought was the one. We had this connection, like I'd connected with few people in my life. She was a, a real kindred spirit, and, and she was a very attractive person at that, and I was crazy about her. But it didn't work out. And in the process of, of disappointment and heartache, instead, God, God taught me in deeper ways about His own love for me. And about my own deep selfishness, which actually lay behind many of the intense feelings I was feeling for this girl. That's just one example of many times that my life has not gone the way I thought it should or, or wanted it to. Of the many times that God has exploded my expectations and has disappointed my hopes, only later to give me instead something more precious than I could have anticipated. Well, this morning, I'd like us to focus on five revelations that this passage gives us about who the Lord is, which encourages us to put our trust in Him afresh, no matter what. The first revelation is that the Lord is the creator of everything. Everything. That's what God says in verse 24. I am the Lord who has made all things. 
I stretch out the heavens. I spread out the earth. Heavens and earth, that covers it all. There's not one thing in the world, not one thing in this universe that God did not create. And not only did I make everything God says, I made you, He says to His people. First line of verse 24, I formed you in the womb. This is a poetic way of saying that God was planning out and bringing into being His people before they even were a people. This also is a more intimate image than stretching out the heavens, isn't it? I formed you in the womb. The Lord conceived and brought to birth His people. This is a a family image, a parental image. The Lord had set His sights on Abraham. He called Abraham and He taught Abraham to trust Him. Then He caused Isaac to be born miraculously through a promise. Then He chose Jacob over Esau and gave Jacob twelve sons. Then the Lord steered the course of Joseph's life, one of those sons, leading Jacob's sons to Egypt in times of famine. Until in Egypt they indeed grew to become a mighty people whom the Lord then led out by Moses with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. God says to His people, Don't forget, I made you. You are my child. I patiently brought you to birth and I love you. The Lord is the one who created the universe. The Lord is the one who created His people. The Lord is the one who makes each and every nation, who raises them up and brings them into being. Israel, Babylon, Persia, Britain, America, China. And if the Lord has made us all, if the Lord has made you, then the Lord has a right to direct us, to command us, to do with us as He sees and knows best. Second revelation. The Lord is the only God. End of verse 24. Not only did the Lord create everything, but He created it all, all by Himself. God made it all single-handedly with no one to, to help Him think it through or figure it out or make it happen. Chapter 45, verse 5, the Lord declares, I am the Lord and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. In verse 6, he repeats it, insisting, there is none besides me. I am the Lord, there is no other. Now this was quite a radical and offensive claim back in Isaiah's day, as it is today. I mean, Babylon had its gods, Marduk, uh, Nebo, others. Persia had its gods. Who was the Lord to say He was the only God? Especially since the Lord's people were a small, powerless, insignificant people at this point in time. Far greater nations, the the superpowers of their day, had, had conquered the world by calling on the aid of their gods. And in the process, they'd reduced the Lord's people to nothing. What did the Lord have to boast about? I mean, for Isaiah the Jew to insist that Cyrus the Persian was, or or to, I'm sorry, for Isaiah the the Jew to assist 
or insist to Isaiah the Persian that the Jewish God is the only God is like for the ant to tell the elephant, my dad can beat up your dad. <laughs> yeah, right. Back in 1879, archaeologists unearthed a clay cylinder with inscriptions on it in Persia. It's commonly called the Cyrus Cylinder. And this discovery has shed a lot of light on this part of Isaiah because the cylinder contains Persian reflections on Cyrus's conquest of Babylon. It tells how in Babylon, the Babylonian king of that day, Nabonidus, had made himself extremely pop unpopular among the Babylonian people. He was unpopular because he was squelching their worship of Marduk, who was the chief god of Babylon, in order to promote Nebo, another Babylonian god. And the people didn't like this, and, and as a result, Nabonidus became so unpopular that when Cyrus the conqueror showed up, the Babylonian people welcomed him. And so he took the city without shedding hardly a drop of blood. And Cyrus took this good fortune to mean that the god Marduk himself had raised him up for the task. And so Cyrus promptly reinstated the worship of Marduk, and he worshipped Marduk himself, the Babylonian god. As the cylinder boasts, Marduk inspected and checked all of the countries, seeking for the upright king of his choice. He took the hand of Cyrus and called him by his name, proclaiming him aloud for the kingship over all of everything. You see, at that time, everyone was religious. Societies were organized around the worship of their gods. That's where kings found their legitimacy for their government. And to question the gods was to call into question the very fabric and foundation of society. And yet here in one fell swoop, the Lord is discrediting all the gods and therefore all the nations and the foundations on which the whole ancient world was made, in fact. So here's the question for us. What idols, what gods have us overawed? Now, we may not worship uh, pagan gods anymore, but what do we take as the basic givens of existence, the, the pillars on which our society depends? The economy? Wall Street? The internet? Facebook? Democracy? American supremacy? God says, don't put your trust there. None of it is anything unless I uphold it. And one day it will all surely fail. Get your eyes back on me, the only true God behind this world. I alone made it all. Third revelation then, which flows out of the first two. While the Lord allows peoples and nations of the earth to make their own choices and to go their own ways, ultimately, he controls the course of history. Not Marduk, not Cyrus. Back when Cyrus was rising to power, he was the horse everyone was betting on. 
Everyone was buying stock in Persia, so to speak. Because Cyrus was unstoppable. He hardly, uh, or I'm sorry, he handily won every war that he fought. His contemporaries either praised him or, or, or dreaded him for his military prowess and his leadership ability and the favor that the gods had evidently uh, bestowed on him. But the Lord says, don't let any of those perspectives fool you. I myself have raised up Cyrus and given him success for my own purposes. That's why he's succeeding. Not because of his own abilities, not because of the Persian gods or because Marduk wanted to have the spotlight back on him in Babylon. Verse 44, or chapter 44, 28. No, the Lord says, I am the one who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and I will accomplish all that I please. And 45.1 This is what the Lord says to His anointed, His Messiah, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of, to subdue nations before Him and to strip kings of their armor, to open doors before Him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you, Cyrus, and will level the mountains. I will break down gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron. The Lord gave Cyrus his world empire. And when Cyrus had consolidated his rule over the, vast, the vastest empire that the world had known to that time, he proved to be actually a fairly beneficent ruler. He felt that uh, the conquered peoples would be more loyal to him if he treated them well instead of harshly. And being superstitious, Cyrus felt that all the gods would treat him better if he treated them well too. And you wanted to be on the good side of all the gods. So, as we read in the book of Ezra, Cyrus made a decree that the Jewish people could go home and could resettle in the towns of Judah and rebuild the city of Jerusalem and the Lord's temple there. And the Lord insists here, see I, myself, raised up Cyrus, and I put it in his heart to let my people go home. Sure, on a human level, everything can be explained in terms of politics and personalities, but look at the bigger picture. See the story behind the story. I, the Lord, have done all this, and as proof, I foretold it all before any of it came to pass. I am in control of world history, then and now. Sure, people and nations make choices. They choose good or evil. But I stand over it all, working it all out for my ultimate purposes. And that is still true today. You won't read about it in the New York Times. But there's no need to worry. The Lord still has His hand on the rudder of history. This leads us to our fourth revelation, which is that what God, or I'm sorry, it's what God is trying to accomplish through his sovereign, sovereign direction of all things. When I was a child, my grandfather, who was a good Lutheran, used to pray the same prayer every night at dinner. He'd pray, God, bless this food to thy glory and our good. 
And I never liked that prayer because it was the same thing night after night. There was nothing personal about it. It got boring. But, but later I came to realize the value in it. To thy glory and our good. God's glory and the good of his people. These are the two greatest motivations of God. These are the two ends to which God always moves all things. He works all things for his own glory. And he works all things for the good of his people. So Isaiah 45.3, God says to Cyrus, the greater, greatest world, the, ancient, uh, the greatest ruler the ancient world had known, I do all this so that you may know that I am the Lord. And verse 6, I do it so that all people may know that there is none besides me. God's desire, God's purpose was that through Cyrus, all peoples might come to know the Lord. God was and is concerned about His glory, about His name, about His reputation among all the peoples of the earth whom He created. In verse 4, He's also concerned about the good of His people. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, of Israel, my chosen, I do all of these things, He says. God reminds His people that He still cares for them. He is their Redeemer. He formed them in the womb. He cares for them. And so God insists, He's raised up Cyrus for His people's own good. For their salvation. Maybe not for their comfort. Maybe not for their immediate security. But for their good. Of course, God's people can't see it that way. They don't approve of the way God is going about things. Just as we often don't. And that leads to the fifth and final revelation in this passage. And that is that God's wisdom is not our wisdom. In fact, very often His ways strike us as crazy and foolish and offensive. The Jews were longing for, for a Jewish Davidic king to be their Messiah. And for God to offer Cyrus, the conquering Gentile, what was offensive and abhorrent to them. It was against all of their nationalistic sensibilities. They didn't want Cyrus any more than we would want an Ayatollah to be the savior and commander-in-chief of our democracy. But God delights to work in ways which seem foolish to us. He delights to turn our wisdom on its head. Isaiah 44, 25. I am the Lord who foils the signs of false prophets and makes fools of diviners, who overthrows the learning of the wise and turns it into nonsense. Prophets, diviners, wise men, these were the very ones that ancient peoples looked to for wisdom. They were the journalists, the bloggers, the, pro the prognosticators, the experts of their day. And yet the Lord relished in, in foiling them, of throwing them off track, of turning their words into nonsense. And in a smart church like Community Bible Church, we can expect that God needs to do the same for us sometimes. Because we're thick-headed, at least I am. 
We get puffed up by all that we know or think we know. We, we get constantly sucked back into the human wisdom that we have been so well schooled in. And so God says, all right, if you insist in putting your trust in that house of cards, I'm going to upend the whole deck. Instead, look at me. Trust in me, your creator, the creator of all, the only God who works everything out somehow for my glory and for the good of my own people. Continuing in verse 29, he says, I carry out the words of my servants and I fulfill the predictions of my messengers. It's my words that you can trust and my plans that you can depend on, the Lord insists. They may sound crazy. You may even find them offensive. But you can take them to the bank. They are true wisdom indeed. So how are we to respond to all this? Well, in verse 8, our last verse, Isaiah invites us to respond by joining with God in a beautiful prayer of response. If you can say that God prays. You heavens above, rain down my righteousness. Let the cloud shower it down. In other words, bring it on, God. Do it your way. Express your righteousness by raising up Cyrus as our deliverer. Even though we can't see how that's righteousness at all, we'll go with it. Let the heavens rain down God's righteousness. Then the prayer continues. Let the earth open wide. Let salvation spring up. Let righteousness flourish with it. I, the Lord, have created it. Let the earth open wide. Heaven acts, but the earth has to respond. Just as rain from heaven does no good unless the earth opens up its soils to soak it in. So we who are of the earth have to open up and have receptive hearts. Not only for when the things God does make sense and when we like them, but also for when the hard things happen and the confusing things happen. At this time of year, we remember what a wonderful model of this Mary, the mother of Jesus, gave us. When she was told the outrageous, foolish, uncomfortable news that she, though a virgin, would be with child, and all of the social problems and relational problems that caused her, what did she say? She said, Okay, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. So let's take a minute and think about what troubling thing God is doing in our lives. Or maybe something he did in the past which you still haven't come to grips with or forgiven him for. Maybe it seemed foolish 
or offensive. Maybe it made no sense. Maybe it hurt. I'm not saying that everything which happens to us is necessarily what God wants for us. But I'm talking about some of those things which you have a sense that his hand was in, but you don't like it, you didn't like it. Let's take a minute to just silently talk to God about those things as he gently asks us, will you open up your heart enough to trust in my baffling wisdom. Let's pray. God, it's tempting to do what people throughout history have always done, to retreat to idols, which because we've made them ourselves are safe and predictable and never throw us for a loop. And yet you, the creator of all things, the one who made everything that is, and is above all things, are wild and mysterious. You can't be tamed or controlled. And yet you are good. And I pray as you give us, as you've given us this morning a fresh vision of who you are, that you would help us to open up our hearts to entrust ourselves to your care, no matter what. Amen.